Hi, Dad. Hi, Celine. Did you know that you and I are about the same age if you count time living in the world? What do you mean? Well, as you know, I left a high-control religious group around the time you were born. So you're in your 20s then? <laughs> well, maybe in my head. The thing is, though, because I had all of my beliefs about morals, science, politics, religion, philosophy provided for me, I spent the last 25 years trying to work out what I should think about a whole bunch of stuff and work out what's going on. No one knows what's going on, Dad. <laughs> well, I think it's about time we did. What Should I Think About is a podcast that sets off on a lofty goal to make sense of the complicated, contradictory, confusing but wonderful thing we call the world. Hello and welcome to the What Should I Think About podcast. I'm Celine, And I'm Stephen. And it feels as though it's been a really long time for me that we've done mm. a podcast, but that's because we... you've been gallivanting, you've been on location... I have. I'm making a film. I'm making cool. a film about um, Mia Parker Tang, my housemate and photography extraordinaire. Um, <laughs> she works in self-portraiture um, and landscapes, but landscapes as in pictures of the landscape, but she never takes landscape images. She always takes okay. them in portrait. Oh, she, was like, okay. she was like, I wish that they would come up with different names for things because like mm. there's portraits where you take portraits of people That's and this right. portrait is in the position of the camera and there's mm. landscapes as in she takes pictures of landscapes of the land mm. but she doesn't take them in a landscape format and she's like difficult to explain <laughs> that's interesting no i think that's quite no that's good anyway that because it's a bit weird um yeah that all people will notice that oh, exactly cool. okay. so that's cool. um keep your eyes peeled i've got an mm. exciting uh film coming yeah. up Great. But, um, yeah, that was anyway, in Cornwall. Yeah, we saw some pictures on the Twitter feed you sent through, yeah. and um, I put them up, and they look great. Look beautiful. Yeah, no, it's a really beautiful place. I even caught the sun a little bit <laughs> in um, in England's twelve degrees. Yeah, <laughs> you know, you're truly English when you burn in twelve degrees. <laughs> we had our own personal guided tour from Jordan at English Heritage of the site. Cool. It was very good. Shout out to Jordan. He's also from Peterborough originally, but I think he probably feels more Cornish than Peterborian now. But, yeah. um, well, just because he, I think that, you know, when you've come to be somewhere for a while, you know how a lot of Londoners are not actually from London. You take it on though, don't you? Good. Okay. Well, that's, um, looking forward to that. Looking forward to seeing all of that. More on that later. So, uh, but we're going to talk about something different today, aren't we? Yeah. Today it's, um, well, it's more what you've been reading while I've been away, you've yeah. been reading a book. I have. So it's one of my birthday presents, um, actually. It's um, When Prophecy Fails, the original sort of um, deep dive into cognitive dissonance. Um, Leon Festinger is the famous name on that. Co-authors Henry Riken and Stanley Schachter. It, it's, a really, it's a really interesting book because it is so influential so it's a book I, I kind of feel ashamed I haven't read already but it is it's quite an old book it was written in the 50s and um, however Leon Festinger then went on to really pad out his ideas around cognitive dissonance and it's passed over into normal lexicon now you know everybody kind of knows what that means or at least thinks they know what it means um, cognitive dissonance that's used quite a lot 
And uh, so, yeah, I, I thought I'd read the original work that was when they were starting to understand what this thing might mean. Um, but it wasn't anything like what I expected. It was really surprising. In a good way or? Um, well, in a kind of, well, in a not so good way, but also it was much more um, narrative based than I expected. I thought it would be a much more technical psychological book about the theory and how the theory works um, but there's not much theory in it at all it's a qualitative study into or field study essentially into this group um, or at least once the book gets going that's that's the main part mm. of the book um, I imagine that's what happens in like a more pop published book though like you have to read probably the scientific journals to get the meth- like the 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 nitty gritty of just the study and then this is for reading so you you can like talk about it but it's for like general populace not just psychology students um i I don't know i think i think this was this in its day so we're going back again don't forget we're going back to the 1950s and Mm. when this was written um the 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 sort of dominant psychological theory or, or uh frameworks were psychodynamics which is the freud stuff the weird sort of you know ego id and super ego all that sort of stuff and then and the other one the, the more dominant at that point was the behaviorists um and they were very robust in their scientific methodology um so this really cuts across that quite quite you know hugely really if that's a word um and it's um yeah, it's it's the way it wrote, uh, the way it recorded this uh, this field work. It didn't go down particularly well, I think, at the time, but it, it then became much more respected. I think mainly because of the work that Festinger did afterwards. Mm. So we, we'll get into that another time. I'm going to do a review of, of some of Festinger's work later, which I think had done in much more of a robust way. But this was an attempt to try and um, find support for a hypothesis so this book is a basically it's the the forming of a hypothesis the forming of a of a theory um based on history and then looking for a something that they could test that theory on Mm. so they came up with this theory of cognitive dissonance based on what they'd seen of millennial movements like the millerites and so on the history of that and then they said well we think this might be going on let's test it by observing a modern group that has some similarities and see what happens, see whether our predictions come true. Does Festinger have a religious, ex-religious background himself? Or? Um, honestly, I don't know the answer to that. There's no mm. hint of that, actually, um, that he has so it's any not like religious a, affiliation. Like it's not like an, an ex-religious person's deep no. dive? It's not that? No, no. It's, um, so, yeah, do you want me to kind of give you a bit of a, an overview of the yeah, book. Yeah, go for it. Um, so I, I see the book as being in two halves, really. So the first part of the book is really why they're interested in this and that they've identified what they think is a phenomenon. Um, and that is that when you have a group that prophesies or predicts a some sort of event, um, that group prophesies that something's going to happen the thing doesn't happen you might expect the group to just disappear but what seems to happen is at least some of those members of the group 
seem to get a you know a kick of activity so they actually go from um or they go to even greater levels of fanaticism or or devotion to this idea even though the prophecy hasn't come true so that seems counterintuitive you know if i said the end of the world was coming a week next tuesday you know and the end of the world doesn't come a week next tuesday you might think that anybody that was following me would abandon me but history seems to say that that doesn't necessarily happen so the first part of the book is really looking back at history and saying well you know this has happened before so they go through um the uh, montanists um, the anabaptists of 1550 sorry 1533 who believed the millennial reign would happen then um sabotai zevi in 1648 declared himself the messiah um nothing happened um, and then the Millerites, to spend a bit more time on the Millerites, William Miller, uh, a New England farmer, um, spent two years studying the Bible in 1818 and decided on the basis of that two-year study that the end of the world would occur in 1843. Um, and what I find interesting is the language around uh, the Bible and the time prophecies and the cleansing of the temple, how he did those calculations was all those sort of time prophecies. And of course, I recognize them so much, or those so much, because it's the same principle that Jehovah's Witnesses used when mm. they did their time prophecies. And I'll come back to that in a minute. I do find the time prophecies very strange. Mm. The idea that it's all there, you've just got to like do some math to work it out, I do find yeah. it very odd. I can't imagine that all of this, you know, creating mouthpieces for God and, you know, you know, having all of these interactions and then just a stark refusal to tell you when the end is coming but if only you do some let's math make it know. a quiz yeah like it's like a word search i just i don't i still yeah. find it very hard to comprehend but there we are that's what's happening they're doing some math anyway they're, they're, yeah that, that's right i think what it what it does is it, it um it creates this feeling of you know hidden knowledge but it's there if you really look for it it's there if you're faithful and you really want to find it but if you're not then you're obviously you're not one of the chosen ones i think that's what it is it's a, a level of exclusivity mm. um anyway the millerites decided that the end would occur in 1843 then they clarified that a bit and they said well actually if you look at the year um that how it works the time prophecy would actually it means that the end will come between march the 21st 1843 and march the 21st 1844 so it's basically a year um a year's period so anyway 1844 march 21st 1844 comes and obviously goes so now you've got this classical disconfirmation it hasn't happened um and initially you see disappointment, unhappiness. Um, but then, um, to quote the book, you get excited, greater exhibitions of loyalty to the expectation of the impending judgment day. So you get, you get a, a, a surge, essentially, of activity. And there's a, there's a bit I was going to read. It's in the book. So I'm going to read a couple of bits from the book at various points. It's actually the, the book I'm reading from. You can actually download a PDF. I don't know if it's strictly above well, I board. it will be now because mm. it will be within public domain, won't it? Cause it's... So if, yeah, probably. If you're interested in that, um, 
the PDF, the one that I use, because it's quite handy if you're doing research to have a PDF, because you can do searches on words, whereas you can't on, in a book. So I use both. But you'll have to bear in mind, when I give you a page number, in the PDF, it's two pages less. So this is on page 20 in the book. I guess it must be page 18 on the PDF. But this is what they say. So this has happened. The end hasn't come, although they thought it would. But they they decide that this is an opportunity to, to do some preaching work and evangelizing. And um, this guy was called Himes. He was kind of the sidekick of Miller. A press shall be established at London and lecturers will go out in every direction and we trust the word of the Lord shall have a free course and be glorified. What we shall accomplish, we cannot tell, but we wish to do our duty. That was from the Advent Herald of August the 21st, 1844. So that's August now. This is, obviously it was March when it should have happened. So we've only got, you know, three or four months afterwards. They're now getting themselves ready for a big work of evangelizing, getting presses ready. They're going to go and do talks and evangelize across the, the world. Mm. And um, and that's kind of what happened. So this is a this is the curious phenomenon that I'm talking about that, that they were looking at. And what then happens is there's a there's a new prediction. So it hasn't happened. They're going to go for it. But now somebody suggests, well, maybe we've got the math slightly wrong. Maybe it should be October. Mm. So I don't. The book doesn't really explain why they came to that conclusion, but they think they've done something a bit wrong. So it's the same year, just a f just October, a few months later, and and this prediction had such traction that um, people who were like uh, real adherents to it did things like selling possessions. Uh, farmers left their crops mm. in the ground so they go rotten because uh, harvesting the crops would be an evidence of lack of faith. So mm. they just left the crops to rot, um, and again, it didn't happen. And this time, the the book suggests that that was it. It it kind of that was the moment when it shattered the movement. It never really recovered from that. Yeah, people must have. I mean, people could have starved. I don't know if they did, but they definitely could have if they've left their crops to rot in the ground. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, the disconfirmation. So this is page twenty-five. The disconfirmation of October the twenty-second brought about the collapse of Millerism. It had taken three or perhaps four disconfirmations within a period of 18 months, but this last one was too much. So the point is made that, you know, after after too many disconfirmations, then eventually it does dissolve, but it, it will go through an initial period of, you know, um, revival and... We can and, do this. Yeah, mm. we can do this. Let's use this extra time we've got sort of thing. And mm. so that's um, that's what they observed from history and that so the theory that the authors then propose involves cognitive dissonance so cognitive dissonance is this uncomfortable feeling when we're faced with the disconfirmation of a cherished belief so if we mm. really believe something is true and then there's absolute evidence to show that we're wrong mm. then we feel uncomfortable and that's cognitive dissonance and then what we try to do is we try to reduce that level of dissonance, reduce that uncomfortable feeling. And the problem is, is if we put a lot of 
commitment into it, then it's difficult just to abandon it because that would be one way to reduce the dissonance. But that's really difficult. So what often happens is people will double down and they'll find other ways to justify their belief. And part of that might be to go and get more disciples, go and do preaching or evangelizing to try and get more people involved in this movement because that in itself is likely to increase levels of happiness and satisfaction of being part of it because you're bringing new people in mm. so that's that's kind of what they they thought was going on there mm. but like where does the book go because i presume that's the beginning of the book but there must be more yeah so they the the writers the authors um say there's five conditions basically for this thing to happen what they've just described so i'll go through those five very quickly you mean like the breakdown yeah, so first of all, there's the belief um, in something that is held with deep conviction. You know, I really believe the end is coming a week on Tuesday. I really, really believe it. Mm. Um, and then number two is highly committed to that. So I'm going to take action. I'm going to sell all my worldly possessions. I'm going to pack in my job because it's definitely coming. So I'm, I'm showing commitment by action. So that's the second one. The third condition is that the belief i have has to be quite specific and it can be refuted so by me saying it's definitely going to happen a week on tuesday you know i can't get away with with just brushing over that if it doesn't come that's obviously that hasn't happened fourth point is that um, when this thing doesn't happen it has to be so obvious that i just cannot ignore it so Mm. i have to accept it that it hasn't happened. Um, and then the fifth element is that I need social support. So if it's just me on my own, mm. I'm probably going to abandon it. But if I've got social support, then I ma- might um, do that doubling down thing and find a way to justify what's happened and then start to do some um, evangelizing. So that's yeah. that's the, the five conditions, if you like, that they've identified. So what they then do, and the ne- so the next part of the book is, I would say, the, the main part. But if I'm honest, the bit that very few people, well, that I've spoken to, actually know about. So I wonder how many people have read this book, because very few people really talk about the detail of this. So, you know, there's, there's, um, there's a big bunch of weeds over there mm. that I want to get into. Because that's really how we're going to understand what this book is saying and what, what conclusions we can draw from it. So I'd, I'd like to, if you don't mind, I'd like to really get into the weeds. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, so ask me stuff about those weeds. You know, interrupt me at any point because mm-hmm. I can just rabbit, rabbit on about this because I'm fascinated by it. Um, but the next part of the book then Weed focuses... Um, <laughs> yeah. um, it's really about saying, well, we think this is what happened to the Millerites. We think this is what happened to those other groups. But we've got a theory. about the Millerites completely disbanding, because aren't they quite like influential with JW? So it's not like they completely die. Absolutely. So, because the, like, they've just said that, you know, and then the Millerites ended and that was it. But that's not true, because I've heard you talk about the Millerites before. So just because it takes on a new name or a new guys doesn't mean it kind of ended i suppose i think that's a really interesting point and i think you can argue quite strongly that from the millerites came other movements like jehovah's witnesses like they just seven... rebranded well not quite because they were different people yeah, but they yeah. they essentially they took on these ideas 
and ran with them in a slightly different way. Um, and and as I say, if you if you look at some of the, the 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 structure of the language that's used by the Millerites, it could be a watchtower. Because it's not like all Christian groups do that, is it? It's not like C of E or um, Catholics go knocking on doors or like you know trying to convert in that way. I think obviously there is you know people marry and they want to convert and so on, but it's different, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, but even to the even to the um, the name of the publication. So the the Millerite publication is called the Advent Herald. Mm. Um, Charles Tage Russell, when he he started to produce the Watchtower, that was called the Watchtower and Herald of Christ's Presence. Yeah. So it, you know, it's it's very very similar. So yeah, I agree that it's um, and whilst it's not exactly the same group, it it is uh, just a rebirth essentially of these same ideas. And in some respects, I mean, it, it kind of this is a confirmation of of um, Festinger's work, really. Mm. You know, does that, so I don't know why they've made such a bold statement, say it finished, because actually, in many respects, what happened next confirms their idea that, yeah, it, there was a new movement that came from it, and they became very um, big evangelizers. I mean, that is the one thing Jehovah's Witnesses are known for, particularly. Yeah. Um, Okay, so so we've got that. How can we... So I'm, I'm playing the part of the authors now. They're basically saying, well, we've got this theory. Mm-hmm. We think this is what happened. How can we prove it? How can we find some real evidence for it? So mm-hmm. what they do is they take advantage of, of a newspaper article about this woman um, who claims to be able to give some prophecies about the end of the world and it's all wrapped up with ufo cult or ufo um ideas at the time and so they basically they say well this is a real life current situation that we can observe and see whether this actually happens because they obviously they don't think the end is going to come when they thought so they're going to watch and see what happens to this group and see how people behave within the group and see whether upon disconfirmation this group behave in the same way as the Miller rights did. So that's basically the setup of the book. Mm. And so that's what they do. Now, bear in mind, this is supposed to be a, a scientific um, piece of research. Um, so I will come to the fact that I think there's some unbelievable <laughs> or unbelievably bad bits of research here. It's, mm. It's quite shocking. Well, it's it's <laughs> ethnographic in the way that it's um, finding a group and infiltrating, becoming, you know, observing a group rather than um, being in a lab. So ethnographic, I mean, you might be able to give a better description of ethnographic, but it, it, it's to be in the field, to make it as simple as I can, I think. Yeah, essentially, that's right. And... Um... An ethnographic approach will they will get involved in in the life of the um, the tribe or the group or whatever it is that they're going to study. But as far as I understand it, um, they would actually they wouldn't try to pretend that they weren't what they were. So they would come in from outside and um, and they might get involved in the community, but they wouldn't pretend to be mm. you know cousin Bob from from no. the other village you know but there's an ethical discussion of 
going into someone's like potentially like let's say private home if you're doing an ethnographic study of witnesses for instance if you were going to their like private home and talking with them and then putting that in a study there's an ethical question there because you know they've not opened up to the world so i suppose Mm. there's that question but also you've probably got bigger questions as to the research i'm thinking ethics i don't know if you're thinking quality of study but well yeah i mean they're both they're both really important um but we yeah we'll we'll get there i'll I'll tell you a little bit about the uh the group so the group um is well technically led but I, I again i think this is an interesting question about leadership and um whether this group really fits the cult description if there is such a thing mm-hmm. um but mrs keach um so all of the the names in this research are pseudonyms um, mm-hmm. i understand mrs keach her real name was dorothy martin um but i'll just use mrs keach because all of the other names are are pseudonyms as well um she is a woman who has some history in interest in the occult. She's um, she was audited by a, a Dianetics auditor. So do you know what Dianetics refers to? Yeah, Scientology it became Scientology. So um, there's a lot of Scientology um, links here, but it's not. It's, this isn't Scientology. But a lot of the people who end up becoming part of this group were part of a Scientology group. So that includes mm-hmm. Mrs. Keach. But she was interested in all sorts of things. Dianetics, um, theosophy, um, the I Am movement, OASP, um, flying saucers, you know, all of this stuff she was really it's into. All space stuff? Or... Well, no, just like from Eastern mysticism through to um, neoclassical mysticism through to christian movements i mean the i had to look up the oasp um, movement they basically it's about a new bible that they said appeared and it was the words of jehovah um obviously jehovah um anyway she was really into all this stuff but so were most of these group uh, most of these individuals or a lot of them let's say so that's mrs keach and she uh, was a medium and she started doing what was called automatic writing it's very surrealist, Again, isn't it? Pardon? It's surrealism, that. Which surrealism. Comes, surrealism comes from... It, it's, it was a, a movement. Um, it comes from Dadaism originally, which is, you know, this idea of, like, nothing means anything, an item can be anything. Um, and surrealism also used automatic writing, automatic drawing, all of that to find this true self and so on. Um it, but it's, surrealism has its strong links in in Freud. So again, I think I think the difference though is is that type of automatic writing is trying to access the unconscious, mm. whereas this automatic writing was channeling um, beings. This so this automatic writing was being used as a mouthpiece for mm. a creature called Sananda who was living on a planet called i've got to say i don't believe why you find out which planet this creature lived on um i don't re i don't buy into surrealist automatic writing as is for the in the inner self and i definitely don't buy into um 
alien on another planet being channeled through automatic writing. Mm. I do find it difficult, but I guess you'll tell us what more about these people. As we well, go. I, I think there's, there's something in automatic writing in terms of it's got to come from somewhere, and it's definitely not coming from a spirit. So it must be coming from you. And if you're oh, writing yeah, stuff that you don't, the idea you that don't you could completely like exit your, you know, controlled function and just write your pure self onto paper. I take issue with but you know yeah i mean i i I don't really have an opinion about that but Mm. what i do know is that it's not coming from sananda who is an incarnation of jesus christ on the planet's clarion or cerus you know i do know that you found the planet though um yeah no but anyway carry on tell us more so yeah so anyway that's she was that was what she was well known for she was doing this um channeling of this this being how do you get well known for that such a bizarre thing yeah isn't it? how do these it, it things is. take off it's like can't mm. get anyone to um you know engage with <laughs> you know like engagement's so hard and then she's just like scribbling it was down a different world back then um, about an alien but, yeah. called jesus yeah but, but there was not there was a lot of interest in flying saucers i mean one of the things that's quite um i think quite quaint about the book is the language because it was written in the 50s, you know, um, these are not alien abductions or aliens. Uh, um, these are spacemen in flying saucers, you know. It's, it's all spacemen in flying saucers. Um, but anyway, that was that was in the zeitgeist at the time. That was what people were thinking about and interested in. Um, so that's Mrs. Keach. And she's the main character, I suppose, in that she's the one that's that's giving these instructions and telling everybody that this thing is going to happen. So her main prophecy was that in uh, on December the 21st, 1954, mm. that there was going to be a great flood. So when I said the end of the world, I mean, technically, it was a great flood that was going to destroy most of um, America and large parts of Europe and so on. Mm. Um, and that was the prophecy. So um, everything kind of points to this date and we 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 go through the 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 weeks or the months and weeks leading up to that date so that's quite an important date it's another end of the world one it is essentially it's another end of the system sort of thing and that they as members of this group would be taken up by um, spacemen in Mm. flying saucers so they would be taken um, literally and put somewhere safe and that kind of differed where they were going to go um there, there's lots of change it's very complicated and quite frankly baffling set of beliefs and it's never really there's no sort of single book or single idea that's uh, overarching and it's just like they, they get you know new writings every now and again and and new instructions every now and again and they interpret things every now and again mm. and it all seems to not make sense but they just manage they hobble along so it's not a very well structured set of beliefs mm-hmm. um so that's basically what's happening so that's her that's mrs keach mr keach is quite an interesting character because he's um he's a non-believer he doesn't believe any of this her stuff partner. yeah right. her husband he doesn't believe any of this stuff um and there's a funny there's a bit of a, a really <laughs> I find a hilarious little vignette about Mr. Keach. We don't get to know much about him. He seems to be like one of these characters in a film, you know, where he's just... I'll tell you who he reminds me of. Mm. You know in um, Edward Scissorhands? Mm. 
dad. You know, the dad in that. Yeah. He's just like, oh, yeah, whatever's going on. You know, it doesn't matter. Mm. <laughs> he just sort of lets it, lets it drift by. But on one occasion, they decide there was another woman who I'll talk about in a minute who becomes another medium within the group. Um, and she makes a prophecy, essentially, that Mr. Keach is going to die. So Mr. Keach is going to die. And then he disappears up to bed. And somehow they decide that he's dead. He died up there. Mrs. So they, Keech's wife. This is right. Mrs. Keech's husband. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 So they all decide that he must have died. So one of them goes up to check and he's fine. Mm. <laughs> so then they have to try and understand what's happened there. And the decision is, well, maybe he died and he was resurrected. Right. Um, and then somebody says, well, that can't be right for whatever reason. So then they decide that it was a spiritual death. <laughs> and then a spiritual rebirth. And that, in a way, is kind of like a microcosm of what we talked about on the other episode that we've got about this sort of subject, about failure of prophecy, is that you kind of... Initially, it's something that's going to happen in for real, and then it happens in this kind of spiritual sense so you can claim it did happen after all it's just that we didn't see it anyway that's a kind of little sideshow that happens and poor old mr keach um doesn't really know anything about it but he at one point he is a subject of, of a prophecy but it's and it's his wife that makes this prophecy though no it's another oh. woman um who becomes quite important which mm. I'll, I'll talk about in a minute i thought now, it was should... his wife and i was like it's weird no she i don't i can't remember her initial um, response to that. It's all quite bizarre, really. Um, now, what I'm doing here is I'm going through some characters because what this book desperately needed, one of the big frustrations I had in this book, was it needed a damn table. Mm. I mean, it didn't even have a table, Celine. No. You can't... How can you do research without a table? So mm. I've written a table. I've actually put a table together. Um, mm. I'm going to find a place to put it and then we'll have a link to it on the show notes okay. so that anybody who wants it can download the table. I've got all 16 characters, stroke 17 characters, in this table. Their name, their age, their group role, their profession, their interests, and then the, the key elements about how committed they were at the beginning, whether they preached about it, how they felt afterwards and whether they preached afterwards. So it's all there, mm. which is the work they should have done, um, but I've done it for them uh, because we needed a table. It's very confusing because there's there all these characters. There were tables in the 50s. <laughs> I'm sure there were. Tables weren't invented until the 1970s. Oh my God, we needed a table. So it's very confusing to try and keep track of all these different characters. Mm. So I've done it for you. Mm-hmm. So you might, if you're listening to this, you might want to download the table because that will help. Um, right, okay, we're on to Dr. Armstrong. So Dr. Thomas Armstrong, he's a co-founder of this little group that essentially becomes this cult, UFO cult, called the Seekers. Um, that name doesn't really continue. So that's another thing. that This group doesn't really have a proper name. But it starts off as the Seekers. Now, he's a, a medical doctor, so he's educated. He's a physician. Um, he was a former missionary for a liberal Protestant churches. He studied mysticism, the occult, Hinduism, the Apocrypha, this Oates thing again. It's hard mm. to pronounce that. All the same sort of stuff. He's also into George Adamski and flying saucers. His wife, Daisy, she's very similar. She's got a similar background. She went with him uh, or they went together on their mission. Now, she suffered a nervous collapse. And she's also had some 
um, kind of medium type activity. And in fact, what is a nervous collapse? Because that's fifties talk. What would we call? I that guess now? we'd call it a nervous breakdown, really. Like having a like a, a mental health crisis or something. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, and I don't know if it's linked to that, but she also starts to get into some kind of supernatural or some spiritistic work if you like mm. now it's a bit complicated so i won't go into it but she she finds herself interpreting what she thinks are venusian footprints go footprints on, on v Ve- footprints on venus and on the basis of these footprints no, no. what she got a telescope what she <laughs> i can't remember how she gets these but I think they were in the they were in the ether somewhere. Somebody was talking about them. Okay. Um, I mean, obviously they're not a thing, are they? Because there aren't any footprints on. No, that's things. why I was also like, no, no, <laughs> don't just brush over that. <laughs> anyway, on the base, yeah, it's the best is yet to come. On the basis of these footprints, she interprets what they mean. You see, you didn't know that footprints needed to be interpreted, but she interprets these footprints to mean a prediction of the rising of the lost continents of Mu and Atlantis. Mu. Like the Mu Mu, that one. Justified ancients of Mu Mu. I don't understand. (laughs) (laughs) I'm so confused. Yeah, so Mu and Atlantis is, uh, these are ancient myths of lost civilizations that have have basically disappeared under the water. And they were like ancient. Um, have you never watched Ancient Aliens, Celine? I try my best not to. <laughs> anyway, it was discussed actually. Sort of it was discussed we while we were on our trip in Cornwall. Oh, was and, it? Um, and we said that they need to change their phrase to "from is it possible to is it probable." Well, no, that would spoil it all. Wouldn't no, it? no. I, I think they should. I think they should all take a good long sit and, and ask, "Is it probable?" Anyway, anyway, let's uh, you try dragging me off piste mm. so um daisy armstrong who's the wife of dr armstrong she um has this interpretation of of this footprint separately to mrs keach so if you're of a certain mindset you're thinking ah this is corroboration mm. of mrs keach's prophecy so these two meet up are through being interested in ufos or um, flying saucers as they called them um, and um, and they sort of share notes and they start to think oh yeah this is all the same stuff so these three are very tight you know they're, they're very much at the heart of this um, Dr Armstrong Thomas Armstrong and Daisy Armstrong his wife um, have a daughter called Cleo and Cleo is of college age and right. um, and she, there's not a lot to say about, there's much more to say about some than others. We don't get to know her particularly well, but she, we do get to know her kind of strength of belief. So we'll talk about that in a bit. Um, then we've got some other students. We've got Bob Eastman, who who's kind of been taken under the wing of uh, Dr. Armstrong. We've got Kitty O'Donnell, who's the girlfriend of Bob. Um, she's a single parent. She's just a bit older than Bob. She's she has left school, but she's a production line worker. And then we've got two youngsters again, student age, Fred and Laura, Fred Purden and Laura Brooks. They're students, music undergrads. Mm. Uh, then we've got Edna Post, who's um, Edna who Post. 
Edna Post, yeah, and her son Mark, and mm. they, 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 again, she comes from a Dianetics background, so she's part of this Dianetics group, and then her son kind of she drags him along by the sounds of it. He seems like a mm. bit of a bit of a wimp, and then we've got Bertha Blatsky who. Um, is is one of the most interesting characters. She starts off being kind of just interested and not particularly interesting, but then through something that happens, she ends up taking quite a big role and becomes a, another medium in the group. Mm. And so she starts being a medium for Sananda again, this character that apparently is Jesus, um, but in a different form, but also the creator. So this is what you call trumping the boss isn't it she now is the not only is she the medium for jesus she's the medium for the creator as well um we've got susan heath who is a, a young student we've got um arthur bergen who's only 15 or 16 we've got may and frank novick who are a married couple may comes from a dianetics background again we've got clyde wilton who's a bit of a flying saucers aficionado He's kind of into all this stuff. He's got a PhD in the natural sciences. We've got Kurt Freund, who's a publisher. Um, and that's pretty much it in the group. There's another character called Mrs. Lowell, who is a like another medium in a different city. Essentially, she's got her own thing going on. But there seems to be some confirmation and at times disconfirmation of what's going on over here. So that that's it. So that's the first thing you have to realise is that we've not got very many characters here. It sounds like quite a lot when you're reading them out. There's enough for a table, though. There's enough for a table. There's 16 people, basically, who are a member of this group, who are considered to be regular enough to the meetings, um, who are around during this confirmation, and who we get to learn about in a bit more detail, some more than others. So that's that's the group. Any questions? <laughs> I suppose my immediate thought is just power of belief i suppose is what i keep thinking is like you can you can go places if you just believe <laughs> you know <laughs> somebody said that once mm. um yeah so there's a i suppose let me let me just go through the, the the significant moments so basically we have this date of december the 21st 1954 so this is the date they're all looking for um and what happens is is the authors and some researchers join the group so remember we've only got 16 people in the group altogether, really apart from some hangers on well, and some, some of them are kids as well some of them are kids we've only got 16 in total and we end up we've got three authors and we've got at least two um observers at any given time and it seems to suggest that they take on a couple more observers towards the end because they're struggling to keep up with it all so out of that, you know, you've got 16 real people and then you've got something like six, maybe seven observers. That's a good amount of observers, isn't it? It's like, you know, half of your group is, is basically people there um, just observing. So I think that, that creates a bit of a problem for this group because we've got, we've got too many who are basically not part of the group, but who are essentially bolstering the, the numbers and making people think that this is more popular than it actually is. So that's one of the problems. Yeah, because it. it says it in the... I thought you said at the beginning that there's a bunch of like, oh, yeah, when there's more people joining. Yeah, support is one of the things that, that you would be looking for. Yeah, absolutely. 
Um, anyway, so we've got this date, December the 21st, and remember that there is no book that they're going by. There is no kind of fixed doctrine it or is set a weird of doctrines. Way in that way, because normally mm. there's always like there's normally a playbook of some sort. Mm, there isn't. It's all coming from Mrs. Keach, and then later Daisy and Bertha. Bertha, or not Daisy, not Daisy, Mrs. Keach and Bertha. Well, I thought Daisy was also. Well, she did a little bit up front, but that's it. She doesn't really get um, involved in any of the medium stuff after she that. She just does footprints and then that's it. She, she, she's a footprint interpreter. That's all. <laughs> well, a Venusian footprint interpreter. Mm. And then she, she hangs up her her boots after that. And uh, it's really Mrs. Keach and... Uh, Bertha. 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 Yeah, that that are are the the mediums, and they um, sometimes agree, sometimes they disagree. So there's a few little power plays going on as I guess well. That's the problem with everyone basically coming in with their own beliefs and just like rolling, you know. Yeah. There's no book. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so the, the the big part, a big part of the book is waiting for orders. So it's one of the chapters of the book is waiting for orders. So they're waiting for. And they're waiting to be told what they should do because mm. they believe that they're going to be be taken up by these flying saucers. It's a shame that the big alien god couldn't just write it in footprints for Daisy to read. <laughs> that would have helped, wouldn't it? So the, the the big the big thing before the big date is when are we going to get taken up? When are we going to get taken up by these aliens in there or oh, these so space I think it's on the day no so they're going to get taken up before um, they don't really know how that's going to happen they're waiting for this information so that's one of the big problems and for some reason mrs keach is not she's not channeling this information sananda is not telling her this it's, they don't know what they're supposed to be doing and they're waiting so that they, now what starts happening is especially mrs keach she's interpreting all sorts of things as little signals and messages so, you know, somebody calls at the door. Oh, you've been sent. What have you got to tell us? Um, a young boy knocks on the door and, oh, that's a spaceman. So they, they get this un- unexpected visit from a couple of boys, three boys, I think. And they straight away, yeah, these are these are the spacemen. Coming up to Mrs. Cage. And, and so she, she starts listening to what they're saying. And then she gets a phone call from somebody called captain video um who is, is that another a non- pseudonym or is that how he announced well this is one of the spacemen and they think but uh-huh. i mean it's believed that it's it's a joke it's somebody playing a joke yeah. so they're basically just getting completely flummoxed by you've got people playing practical jokes on them you've got people turning up taking the mickey out of them and you've got these observers who are contributing to the problem aren't they mm. so you know it's hard to kind of really understand what's happening is all getting a bit confusing one of the most interesting bits um on one of the days they decide that they or mrs keach gets a message that the the spaceships are going to come on this particular date and so they all stand outside in the cold waiting for these spaceships to come down or these flying saucers to come down and pick them up Mm. and it doesn't happen obviously um so they go in again and then they all try to think about what's happened and so on so there's there's a bit of disconfirmation already the date hasn't actually come yet but they expect it to be taken up and then they go for a ride somewhere and they 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 meet somebody and they're oh this must have been one of the aliens this is one of them you know so it's all because they're not getting this information they're interpreting what's going on 
and deciding it must mean this and this and this. Um, there's some quite funny sort of comical moments in the book that relate to this. So one of them, let me find my notes on this. Right, so I said about Bertha, she, she becomes a medium and this is how it happens. It's on page 93 stroke 94 of the book. And this shows you the problem with, with the method that they, they've used in this. Like the research um, method. <clears throat> the research method, yeah. So they, uh, one of the researchers turns up, the observers turns up, and Mrs. Keach, I don't think she expected them, so she decides that she wants him to lead the group tonight. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and we want you to lead us tonight, she says. The author observer attempting to maintain his neutrality protested that he could not officiate as he was not ready. Mrs. Keach countered firmly that he was ready and she would not be put off by further protests. Mm. We all have to face our great responsibilities and take them, she maintained. Finally, the observer agreed to her demand. He was led into the living room and Mrs. Keach told the group that he would lead them tonight. With nine expectant gazes transfixing him, the observer fought for time. Let us meditate, he ad-libbed, <laughs> and bowed his head in silence. After a few minutes of silence, he asked Mrs. Keach to say a few words. She stated simply that the group had been called together for a special purpose, namely the receipt of orders. She asked the observer if he'd anything to add to that, but he had nothing, so the meeting returned to silent meditation as the tension mounted. (laughs) After perhaps 20 minutes more of complete tense silence, Bertha Blatsky, who was seated on the couch with her head thrown back and her eyes closed, began to breathe very deeply in short, sighing breaths. She continued almost panting and interspersing an occasional low moan for perhaps two minutes and then began to gasp. I got the words, I got the words, over and over again. Her heavy breathing continued at a more rapid rate and she began to sob. Within a few moments, Dr Armstrong, Dr. Armstrong and Mrs Keach had crossed the room to assist her. Anyway, turns out she's now getting information from... Uh, Sananda. So she's now become a medium. Never become a medium before, um, but she's now one of the people getting messages. Probably because it was so awkward, she had to do anything. Yeah, exactly. I've got. Can you hear the chicken in the background? I'm sorry, listeners. We have a chicken, <laughs> and it's making a dreadful noise. We're down noise. to one chicken. We're down to one chicken. Also, we have the saw in the background of mine. Yeah, so. it's just a noisy day today. But anyway, but yeah, so. So this is what happens when you when you wade into a group pretending to be part of the group. Um, you then get dragged into it, and of course this this guy observer just didn't know what to do. Um, Let's silently meditate. And another example of this is on page seventy two, where they decide they want to put. Essentially, there's two centres for this uh, group, which mm. they call Lake City and Steel City, but their pseudonyms too i think it's chicago and um forget the other one anyway um in in one of these groups they decide that they they need to send an observer so they send a a a woman to observe on this but they found with the first observer that 
this is one of the curious things about this group is that they're mm. not evangelical at all. They don't really try to bring people in. So when the new new person arrives, they're not sort of like interested in in bringing them in. Yeah. So it's hard to get involved. So what they decide to do with this woman is um, she's going to go and tell them that she's had a dream. And uh, she says that she's had a dream. She was standing near the foot of a hill on which stood a man surrounded by an aura of light. There were torrents of water raging all about and the men and the man reached down and pulled her up to safety. And they admit this dream was completely fictitious. Mm. They just said it so that she could get involved in this group. It makes sense doing something more ethnographic with a bigger group because you can just get in. Do you know what I mean? Like I'm not like ethics aside, you could just go get involved in a JW group because they'd be happy to have you there and like you know, you could just join that and it wouldn't be odd. The problem the problem with this is that she's now actually created That's some what I mean. law. Like she's had to get involved yeah. because they don't really care. That's right. So she's she's now oh they're now take Mrs. Keats think, Oh, this is fantastic, you know, this is a message. This is she's a she's a messenger. We've got somebody else now who's telling us information. So they interpret this information as being significant. Of course it's it's been made up. Mm. So we've got that character, we've got another one who's essentially forced Bertha into a situation where she now becomes the mouthpiece for not only Sananda but the creator as well um, which I think is a problem it's kind of amusing but it is a problem we have another interesting and, and funny clip I want to read to you and it's about um, when they think they're going to be taken up um, onto the spaceship they don't really know where they're going. They might be taken to one of these planets that they, they're transmitting from or they, they might be taken to a, a safe place on Earth. They don't really know. But what they do know is they're going to be taken up by flying saucers. Um, so this is this is one of the, the paragraphs. In one room downstairs, there was an air of excitement. Dr. Armstrong was busy ripping the zipper out of the fly of his trousers while Mark Post energetically removed the eyelets from a pair of his shoes. Frank Novick was wearing a piece of rope in place of the belt that usually encircled his waist, as was Clyde Wilton. It turned out that all the members in their private consultations with Mrs. Keach had received orders to remove all metal from their persons and had zealously complied, not only by emptying their pockets of change and taking off wristwatches and eyeglasses, but by literally cutting apart and tearing out metallic portions of their clothes. <laughs> Um, the I'm glad it ends with explaining why, in some degree, just because the image of people like <laughs> ripping their zippers panicking, off, panicking, yeah. ripping their pants off. Uh, the rationale for this odd action was simple. Dr. Armstrong explained if you're going for a ride in a flying saucer, you must not wear or carry any metal on your body because contact really... with metal would produce severe burns. Okay, it's just really <laughs> funny to like. It's like getting ready to go through the airport, you know, and you have to take off yeah. all metal so that you don't set off the buzzers. It's and it's like, like this, <laughs> this theme goes through it at various points. So, one of the observers, uh, the female observer, she realizes somebody asks her whether she's got metal on her bra. And of mm. course, she does have metal on her bra. So, she has to go in a room and take her bra off. Um, and then so one of the other observers is worried about his fillings because he's thinking, I hope they don't ask me about my fillings. <laughs> because <laughs> I don't want to have to take my fillings out um, so it's like you but, know you're in too deep at this point don't you <laughs> yeah. do you know what I mean like, 
you're in too deep, lads. You've got you've got to turn back. So that they're the characters and they're some of the the things that happened. Um, needless to say, they they never get taken up in spaceships. No. So they're waiting now for the date. They're waiting you're telling for. Telling me they don't get taken up in. They the don't get taken up in spaceships. Regardless of removing all of the metal from them, persons. Yeah, exactly. Um, so we're we're now getting close to December the twenty first, um, and they're all kind of. You know, well, not all of them get to the meeting now. That in itself is quite strange, but most of them get to the meeting where the end is going to come. And it all kind of fizzles out in the end because even before the actual end date, um, it's decided that actually this is what it means. It means that this was going to happen, but because of this group, because of this little group, mm. they are now going to kind of spread the word and... Um, you know, a great thing has happened. Um, so for some of them, that's great. They they become really enthusiastic, but for others, they leave. So the at the heart of this research is this theory that I mentioned before, which is if you've got big commitment um, upon disconfirmation, upon it not happening, then at least a good number of people will will double down and will use preaching and proselytizing as a way to uh, reduce this dissonance. So it's what very we're looking interesting, for, isn't it? Because they were so yeah. like uninterested in that at the beginning that the observers literally had to fake yeah. something to get in. I think that is the key. That's the argument. Yeah. That yeah, but so so the argument is is that before this they weren't interested in proselytizing, then disconfirmation happens, and then they are. So that is basically the argument you see, yeah, yeah. which supports the the hypothesis of cognitive dissonance. It supports what the the author said, and they they claim that this work is strong evidence to support this is true. And this is where I have my biggest problem with the book, right. because I I just dispute that entirely. If you look at the table of how many people fit that perfect model. There are very few. Right. So I suppose are they looking at a grant at the group as a whole rather than individuals? But you you can't because there's only sixteen people altogether. Yeah. So no, it, they're a whole group. <laughs> so Mrs. Keach, mm. if you're going to count her, okay, mm. but she is like the main person in the group. So mm. she was not interested in proselytizing. She was high commitment before. Um, end doesn't come she's even higher commitment afterwards and supports proselytizing so she fits the bill perfectly um we'll ignore mr keach because he wasn't interested thomas armstrong he just needed a bit of peace and quiet yeah dr armstrong also fits that pretty much although he was keen on proselytizing oh so from the beginning from the beginning but he kind of was stopped by mrs keach so the messages they were getting was don't go telling everybody about it you know that's not necessary it's Secret really just keep it, yeah just keep it to ourselves so in a way he doesn't fit this because he it, given half a chance he would have gone proselytizing he would have gone evangelizing high commitment yes but he was keen on evangelizing um after disconfirmation Yes, he was still keen. And of course, he was keen to um, preach the word afterwards. So it doesn't quite fit the the perfect model. Mm-hmm. Daisy Armstrong, 
again, okay, so she was she fits the bill because she was high commitment, wasn't really interested in proselytizing. As soon as disconfirmation happens, she's phoning newspapers in the aftermath saying, you know, okay. talk to us now and talk to this and talk. So they do do quite a lot of that after. So she does the fit. She does fit the bill. But remember that she's like one of the core people in this. She's not really a follower. No. She's actually part of the, the leadership team, if there is such a thing. Are any of them followers and leaders? It's such a small group. Well, I I would say Mrs. Cage, Dr. Armstrong and Daisy Armstrong, and to some degree Bertha, although her involvement wanes because mm. of her husband's um, interference. But essentially those three are the ones that take the lead and, and mm. two out of three of those fit that model, yes. Cleo Armstrong as the daughter, kind of, she fits that. Bob Eastman, not so much. His, he does try to convince his parents before, so he does do some preaching work. He does gather for the for some of these events, and his commitment is kind of high afterwards. But so let's be let's be generous. Let's say yes, he does fit it. So we've got what three people there, maybe. Kitty O'Donnell, no, she she goes. She doesn't believe it anymore. Fred Purden, he goes. He doesn't believe it anymore. Laura Brooks, she goes. She doesn't believe it anymore. Edna and Mark Post. Now, Mark is a young lad who's just going along with his mum. Um, but Edna is, I think, of what you might describe as followers, probably the most perfect example of this. High commitment, no interest in evangelising, disconfirmation, keen to evangelise. So she fits the bill. Mm. Mark Post does the same, but then he is he is her son. And he's like what fifteen? You said he's no, he's a bit older than that, but he's he's not very old. Okay. Um, Bertha Blatsky, she's a bit of a confusing presence in the in some respects. Um, she she vacillates from being high to low within kind of mm. very short order, so it's hard to say whether she fits the bill. Susan Heath, absolutely committed and very keen to evangelize but she leaves after disconfirmation so she doesn't fit the bill either frank novich mary novich they disappear before the disconfirmation Clyde wilton not interested afterwards kurt freund not interested afterwards arthur bergen disappears he's only 15 anyway so really i've got to say are there more <laughs> observers left by the end than there are original members <laughs> probably so having having looked at all of these and if you look at it on a table it kind of brings it home to you you've got mrs keach so you've got mrs keach dr armstrong mrs armstrong cleo possibly bob possibly and maybe the two posts so you've got seven at best seven at best and three of those are people who are kind of leaders of the group so that's only one more than it, the amount of people that infiltrated are just like to state that. Exactly. So given all the confounding variables that they've created by observing and getting involved, um, and there's more that I haven't talked about, given that they're also being interfered with by pranksters and so on, um, and given that, you know, over half didn't fit that, that bill at all, um, I just don't see that the evidence is there that this case actually 
fit the bill. I mean, yes, it it does show how some people are able to rationalise and how for some people they are, you know, it does move them on to, to preach, if you like. But I, you could also argue that was more just one person because Mrs. Keach is the one who really decided whether preaching happened or not. So as soon as she's decided it's true and that this is what needs to be done now, anybody who's going to hang in with this group kind of goes along with that because she's essentially the leader of this group. So I just find it very weak evidence that this thing happened, that they said had happened, um, given all the things I've, I've talked about. So that's my problem with it. It's a fun read. It's a great read and I really enjoyed it. And... I'm not saying that cognitive dissonance isn't a really important contribution that, that they made to, to this whole field, but the study itself just doesn't doesn't cut it's quite it. It's funny though, is it? I'd love I'd love a little film of it. Oh yeah, oh we should do one definitely. Because it's just very funny, isn't it? There's a lot of humour in it, and it. I mean, from the 1950s, I actually had to look up on um, on the internet to see what kind of dress and suits and things they would wear because in my head it, it kind of had a almost a um i don't know a jeeves and worcester feel to it you know mm. but it it wasn't quite like that but it 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 just had this this it this this um, aura of a farce yeah you know that's why it would be a funny film it would let's make a go fund me right now <laughs> Yeah, as listeners, if you're interested in supporting uh, this film, anyway, that's um, we won't do a, a, an appeal. Um, no, it's yeah. Not for a so that's don't go looking for that GoFundMe. That's no, that's pretty much it. There's a couple of other things that I did want to mention. So the other thing in relation to this book is a bit of a hobby horse that I've got about the way that cults are talked about. A hobby and horse, or is in a high horse, or. <laughs> Yeah, high horse, hobby horse. Okay. I just keep getting on this horse, you know. I just yeah. can't leave the horse alone. Leave <laughs> horses alone. <laughs> keep jumping on this horse. It just, mm. it's just bugging me a lot. Because obviously, I've, I've thought about groups like this for a long time, and I, but I'm recently doing a lot of, much more, reading about some of these what I would describe as classical texts about cults, um, and also some of the modern work that's mm. been done around courts and um and i just feel like it's so confusing that it's it, and it's all getting in the way as far as i'm concerned of what we're actually trying to research here so if we're calling this a cult then how do we decide that it's a cult what are the sorts of things it's a difficult one to, for me to call a cult in a weird way just because of how everybody anyone that wanted to leave seemingly just left exactly yeah yeah. Um, it it the farcical nature of it, uh, like to me, cults are a bit more scary in that the way they control you and the way that, you know. But it just feels a little bit more like someone's just standing there. And it's just incredibly awkward. So they're like, I'll just <laughs> say something. Or I am yeah. hearing the words. Now. Do you know what I mean? It just feels like, you know, well, go take the wires out of your bra and rip off your trousers and wear a rope belt instead do you know what i mean it's yeah it's so, it is but it is i a mean bit i farcical. suppose it could be scary in its own way if you really believe things just because they seem funny to us doesn't mean mm. that they're 
they're not. Um, I mean, it had some it had some um, implications. I mean, there's more than one person who, um, you know, sold belongings and so on. There's a, a one of the young women, Susan Heath, I think she mm. she sacrificed friendships for it. Um, another woman, young woman, Kitty O'Donnell, she quit her job. So yeah, people we don't did... know what pressures were being put on them from what mm. I've heard so far. Like I don't know what. Mrs. Keach was like if she was putting like a lot of gas and pressure on, or was she not? You know, did there's people no... just make choices? Yeah, there was there's, no. There's an element of cult, suggestion of cults that. to me mean little choice or no choice. Mm. I suppose this is the problem with cults not having a necessarily defined yeah. structure because I'm just saying, well, cults to me mean no choice and control, and these people, it's you know, if they want to leave, they leave, and mm. there doesn't seem to be consequences. It is. Do you know what I mean? If you apply um, the the sort of uh, the defining characteristics of cults, like Lifton's uh, model or, or the Byte model, you know that the are they controlling behaviour? Not really. People can come and go as they as they like. I suppose having to to remove metal from your um, your pants is a bit weird, but um, thought I control. It was like maybe it was like a suggestion in the way that it was like, well, yeah. you'll get burnt, and it just fits. Yeah, well, that, exactly. Emotion control, not really. Um, information. There was nobody saying you're not allowed to go anywhere else. In fact, there was another character that I haven't mm. mentioned that wasn't part of the group called um, Mrs. Lowell or Lowell, and she was another medium in another part of the country that a few of them went to. And at first seemed to confirm, but then didn't really what was going on. And nobody said, oh, you mustn't do that, you know. Mm. So it, it's not as though... So in many respects, this doesn't doesn't measure up to this, this so-called classic um, cult behaviour. But on the other hand, she was kind of charismatic, I suppose. Um, and no, she, I mean, she managed to get people to follow her. I suppose having the choice to evangelise or not being... Mrs. Keach exposes an idea of information control, but it's not information gathered for yourself. It's information disseminated out. So she's like, let's keep it to ourselves. And then she goes, oh, okay, we can tell the people. Um, is is to a, to a degree. But from what you said, I find it hard to believe that anyone would get booted if they did talk about it, you know? No, no, no. No, they, it, was, it was all very... Um polite and there was no from what i could see no um no suggestion of of undue influence other than you know this is exciting do you want to come for a ride on the on the flying saucers and um you know and talk to the creator and to sananda you know it, it didn't that i just didn't see the the sort of um, the elements that, that you would see in a classic cult. So, again, this this if we're going to use this as an example, which in my view is a bad example of cult behaviour, but anyway, if we're going to use it, well, is this a cult anyway by the by the measures of the of the way that we're describing cults? So I just think this for me emphasises some of the real problems we've got at the moment when we're trying to understand cults. Um, and the more I read from different experts and different um, people kind of trying to explain what's happening that the more the, the the less clear i am personally about what i think so what i'm interested in doing i think is is looking for good theory that's already out there that is used in organizations currently 
and obviously this relates to the masses that I did over the last couple of years, there's actually a whole host of good theories out there around things like um, self-identity, um, self-concept theory, self-determination theory. These are well-understood theoretical structures that we use in organisations to explain things like influence and engagement and so on. But as far as I can see, I've not seen anybody applying those theories to cults. And I don't understand why. So maybe it's me. So if you're a listener now and you say, well, yeah, this was used in this piece of work. The only exception of that might be Henry Teichfeld's um, social identity theory, which I think is mentioned in one or two bits. But other than that, I'm just not seeing all the stuff that I did over the last couple of years around organisations. I'm just not seeing that represented in research into high control groups. And for me... It seems like actually what's happening in these cults is that they're using the same methods of influence, but they're just cranking it up. Yeah. They're just up in the ante. So whilst an organisation, a sort of bog standard business, might try to influence its team to greet their customers in a certain way or to get involved in continuous improvement or something like that, they will use methods like self-concept theory to try and align these ideas with uh, with the person's own self and concept of themselves essentially that's what cults are doing except they're doing it in a malign way they're doing it much to a greater degree and with threats and um, and, and other damaging methods but essentially their goal is the same they're just cranking it up mm. to 11 um, and it feels like I don't understand why we haven't why we haven't really used those ideas. So that's that's kind of the area that I think I want to. That's your high horse. Though. That is my hobby horse or my high horse. Yeah. Mm. So um, so yeah, if you're interested in that, then or if you've got some opinions about that as a listener, um, maybe I've missed something. Maybe there's some some really good work somewhere that adopts these ideas but i wonder if um part of the reason why this isn't in the mainstream is that a lot of the work that's been done on cults has been done by um therapeutic practitioners so psychotherapists Mm -hmm. as opposed to um psychological theorists and i think because of that we've missed out we have we have a a very weak underpinning of theory as it applies to cults and yet, there's lots of stuff out there. So that's that's my current feeling. I mean, I could be completely wrong about it. Maybe I'm just, you know, getting on my hobby horse about nothing. But um, that's that's the way I have increasingly feel about, about when we're trying to explain what cults are. Mm. That's interesting, though. Right. So I think I've exhausted everything I can say about that. Um, I think we've done a good a good dissection of it. Yeah. It's a great, it's a fun book. Read it because it's fun and um, at times funny. And at other times, there's quite a bit of pathos in there as well. Mm. Um, Needless to say, we don't still have that group around. So at some point, it did um, fizzle out and die. Um, Mm. But obviously, we do have similar groups uh, with similar beliefs. So, yeah. Right. Okay. Well, I think that's it. Um, If you want to talk to us about any of that then do get in touch we've had some really lovely bits of feedback recently some some of you 
as listeners have been putting um, comments on Twitter and we've even had some reviews. On... It's happened. Yeah. People have done reviews. Thank you, everybody. So and do some more. What? More. <laughs> I want more. Yeah. Glutton for reviews. No, it's just really good for us. It helps grow um, the community. Does. So if you want to be part of like the early grassroots growing of the community yourself and you can feel smug that you were here from the beginning <laughs> then best thing to do is write a review um that will help you know mm. bring more people in as well and grow it yeah okay good well thank you very much um thank you that's it for this week i'm this afternoon i'm recording or i'm a guest on a podcast actually for the world of work so i'm not sure when that's going to come out but um i'm talking about um career education and transition from cults so it's really about the effect that um coming out of a cult can have on your career and on your your education and so on so maybe we talk about that another time and i'm sure he won't miss to promote our assertiveness course while he's there i'm sure that will happen i will mention that Yes, indeed. Yes, Yes. and and that's just a subtle plug for you too, audience. (laughs) Wouldn't you like to learn to be assertive? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. All right, well, I think that's it now. Let's go. Thank you very much for listening, everybody. And thank you for the conversation. Bye-bye. Bye. What Should I Think About is an Evil Sheep production.